welcome to another episode of Grokology. We are discussing today the topic of the imprecatory psalms, the imprecatory prayers in the psalms. And if you're not sure what that is, we will get round to defining it and explaining what it what they are very, very quickly. But let me first of all introduce a fellow Grokologist who needs no introduction, uh, Darren Moore Esquire. Good to have you with us, Darren. Yeah, good to be here. Looking forward to what we're going to talk about. Although I feel a bit of a, a fraud because really um, this this is now the, the Stephen Jenkins show, isn't it? Um, oh, that we're guests on. Oh, it is. We're going to rename it. It's not going yeah. to be Grokology. It's going to be uh, Jenkinology. Yeah, because um, I, I don't know, because we record this stuff and then it comes out on, on Grokology and we never quite know the order we do it in, but we've, this is, we've quite, close back to back we've recorded three with Stefan and there's two others from he did a, he did some um, it was a while ago wasn't it he did some midweeks for you and I um, with Oxford and Chelmsford and so we're going to use those as podcasts as well at some point so it could be that we have nothing but you know we are just you know bit pairs in, the, in a Stefan Jenkins show is what I think so. we're just accessories to the main event yeah we're just the eye candy for well, people's I- no, Acce- that accessories work in the criminal sense. Yeah, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you will be deemed responsible. We're, we're just here to make you. We're just here to make you look cleverer than, than you are. So. Absolutely. Well, Darren Moore from Chelmsford Presbyterian Church. Great to have you with us. Yeah, and if you haven't already understood uh, what we've intimated, we have uh, the Reverend Doctor Stephen Jenkins with us. Great to have you with us, Stephen. Hey, good to be here. And you'll know whether I need a no introduction, because if I don't, this will be empty. Nobody will be listening to this if they know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> if it, well, we have three regular listeners and a dog. Um, and we the, love our wives for doing that for us. We do. We, we do. <laughs> and if the dog leaves at this point, then... There we go. I'm not sure that that tells us, but wonderful to have you with us. And uh, interestingly, in God's wonderful timing, today you have your PhD doctoral thesis that's been uh, put into a book format, uh, uh, being published, and its title is "Implications in the Psalms: Love in Hard Places," published by Whip and Stock, which is very exciting. And we're here to talk about this with you. What can I say other than you must be very sad people? <laughs> that is a given. Uh, but we still want to talk about your book that's, uh, that's coming out today. And so, imprecatory psalms or imprecations in the psalms, uh, that sounds to some people like uh, you need to go to the doctor and get some cream for that. Uh, uh, what are they? What are we talking about here? Help us out. Define this. Give us some examples. What are the imprecations? Yeah, sure. So it depends a little bit whether you're in the States or in in Britain. In the States, you might hear imprecatory psalms. Okay. In Britain, you might hear an imprecation within a psalm. But really what we're talking about is nasty stuff. Um, I'm not going to define it too closely because that makes the job easier of talking about them. I Let's just talk about as broadly as possible. Things in the Psalms that you read and you think, can I really pray this? What's going on? Right. Um, this sounds thoroughly nasty. Okay. So that's what we're talking about, really. Could you, could you give us some examples? Yeah, sure. So uh, in Psalm 3, for example, you uh, have got David uh, here, in, here in verse 7 saying, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. And then he explains, For you, strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth uh, of the wicked. Uh, or actually, to be honest, in, in Psalm 2, perhaps more famous, 
um, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Or actually, you can go even earlier, go to, go to Psalm 1. Um, speaking of the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. They will not be able to stand up at the judgment. And it ends with, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, so, you know, whether it's declarations that God will judge or requests that God will judge, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not giving people a bunch of daisies in your prayer life is the kind of thing we're talking about. And the, I think as a Christian and as a preacher, the ones where God, um, where, sorry, the, the psalmist is asking God to do something yes. in the here and now, so I think some people might find, you know, your examples in Psalm 1, for example, um, difficult initially. Some will understand that in the grand scheme of judgment and so on. But when you're saying smash the teeth of my enemies, it doesn't sound like Jesus. And one of the things, um, Steph and I were just talking about this when um, we, had some, we had some technical difficulties getting started. Um, so um, uh, there's, a, there's a commentator who I won't name at the moment, but he uh, he's great. He's always really good. And he'll go to the Old Testament and, and show us how it points to Jesus and God's character and, and how we read them as Christians and fantastic stuff. But even he in the psalm, when you get some of these psalms, sort of says things that are quite unsatisfactory that sort of, um, you know, well, that's all in the Old Testament. Um, at best, it's like that. And, and you know, Jesus is doing something totally different. So it means that we can't sing those psalms. Um, we can't apply those bits of the psalms christianly it would appear um but the same person would never ever do that with any other part of the old testament uh, they would help us make sense of that right and so i think you've kind of put your your finger on the pulse there darren i think a lot of christians struggle with this i thought mm. we were supposed to love our enemies mm. right. why are we almost not just calling god to judge them but also almost delighting in that, that mm. this is something good, that this is something glorifying to God. And it's, it's just, it's another example of kind of the God of the Old Testament where we, we kind of squirm and we kind of feel a bit awkward and atheists jump on it and go, there, I see the God of the Old Testament is yeah. this despotic tyrant who's completely out of control. And if you get in his way, he'll squash you like a fly. Who would want to follow that kind of God? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, and I think... Uh, what you know you talked about as a preacher it makes you squirm but if if you think about i mean as a preacher you might squirm at all sorts of bits of the old testament when you have to really stand up and talk about it mm. what makes the psalms make your average christian squirm is well we pray them and we sing them mm. right. we don't pray or sing our way through the book of joshua or kings right. um and so particularly in congregations when we all together with one voice sing amazing grace we're saying to the watching world and to each other that we affirm this yes this is good we we believe this to be true we like it and actually we want it to shape us there's a reason we sing amazing grace because we don't wake up every morning naturally aware that we need grace mm. uh, so when you get up and sing uh, the wicked will perish uh, actually you're not just considering a theological proposition you're together as a body affirming that this is good right. and i think that's what makes us struggle with it far more than in than actually the same theology in other books of the old testament doesn't yeah, create helpful. as much yeah that's right and also actually it's interesting you use the example of amazing grace 
um, because there's a, there's another issue related, and I know your book touches on this. Um, your um, uh, related issue to that is um, we, the, we've just recorded two podcasts with you about justification by faith. Um, and yet some of these Psalms, particularly imprecatory Psalms, talk about how I'm, you know, the, the, the prayer, the singer is righteous before God. And as um, uh, Reformed Christians, that sends your <laughs> hackles up, doesn't it? Mm. That, you know, we, 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 we read Romans, we sing Amazing Grace and say, you know, uh, a wretch like me. And then we, we sing a Psalm that says, I'm righteous before you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I feel awkward. No, that's right. And, and you know, um, actually, g- good evidence that the Reformation was a recovery of Christianity, not a, a twisting of it. Uh, that's been a problem all the way back to Augustine origin. Yeah. Um, that that claim, because of my righteousness, save me, mm. has always caused problems. And, and really, there are two ways that people uh, have gone with that. One is to say, you're mad, you're nuts, you're deluded. Uh, and particularly early 20th century liberal, liberal German theology would point at this and say, do you want any more proof mm. that the Jews are not Christians, that they do not understand grace, that the Old Testament had no gospel? Mm. Uh, so we think that uh, the Psalms are self-righteous and wrongly so. Or we go the other way and say, ah, oh, we know the one who is properly righteous and who could say this and that's jesus so we can't say this at all but he can um so the, those are two very common ways of um uh, of handling that but it just highlights that it is a problem that people see right uh, and just i think this is really important to say this it's, it's also a very personal problem isn't it because we all have friends family relatives neighbors colleagues who are not christians we pray and hope they will become Christians, but some won't. Uh, and we've got friends, family, neighbours, colleagues who have died, not Christians. And this is a very personal issue and can be very difficult mm. for, for lots of people. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea of heaven and hell and of your loved one who's not a Christian going to hell forever is itself difficult enough then to add to it Oh, by the way, God delights in this. Yeah. And we're going to pray for it to happen. Which actually gets us to another way that folks sometimes think about this, um, which is helpful as far as it goes, which is to say, look, this is not, these Psalms are not armchair theology, thinking about people who are unbelievers in the abstract as the wicked. This is prayer under fire. These are foxhole prayers. And so I'm not praying about my gentle grandfather. I'm praying about the mob that's trying to burn down our church after they already raped my daughter. Uh, and, and so I'm praying from a position of needing respite uh, from that. But th- th- we then jump the rail and say, either... Oh, okay. Um, so we can never pray this for ourselves. We've got to find the most persecuted people on the planet and pray it for them. Or actually, we get to the point where even the world, even unbelievers, will now like this psalm because we all know that to be a victim is to be automatically blameless. And so who knew that the Bible has some great words for the woke to pray? 
you know, <laughs> t- take this, you who've got SAT scores five points lower than some other randomly identifiable group and start praying against the Board of Education, you know, knock yourself out, pray that their teeth will be knocked out because you're a victim. So anything you say is good enough. And, and again, you, you, you do, some folks do take these arms yeah. uh, in that kind of way. And that particular example was to my knowledge fictitious, but yeah, that idea of, well, if you're a victim, just pray whatever you want. Okay. So um, where do we go then? How, uh, Stefan, help us start to understand why are these Psalms there? How do we orientate ourselves to them? And what do we do with them? Um, yeah. Where would you start? Okay. So I think the first thing to do is to say that, um, of course, we get why these great, but these are not a problem to be solved. This is God's word for us. Mm. Like the whole of the rest of the Bible, here is Jesus speaking to his people. This is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, written down beforehand. So, in one sense, a bit of patience, not assuming that my first thoughts about it are necessarily right, um, but actually resting in the fact that somehow this is for the good of the church and that we're not looking for a solution to make them go away, we're looking for understanding of what do they really mean. Uh, so, yeah, I think that my main conclusion after looking at this for a while is it's exegesis, stupid. It, it's not wanting to get at your right answer. It's actually, can we just look at what they really do and don't say in the same careful detail that we apply to the book of Romans? Um, rather than just be frightened, label them nasty, walk away, try and solve them. Does that help as a starting point? Yeah, I think that helps quite a lot. And I think, I mean, I, I know some of the answers <laughs> because um, in that we, we work together and we preach in some Psalms together and you helped me through that. And I had a colleague before who was similarly um, a lot more competent in the Psalms than I am. And also I have read some of your PhD. I know that the the book is actually a dumbed down version of the PhD, and um, and it probably needs dumbing down before actually I really understand this. Um, but um, uh, I think what you're saying about exegesis and alongside exegesis is context. So often we're given a context in the Psalms, aren't we? And we are given, and also what is absolutely mind blowing when you when the penny drops is that you mentioned Romans. Well, I think that Psalms probably as well edited and put together and ordered as as Romans. So we would never preach on Romans 4, ignoring Romans 3 and Romans 5. And we always have a liturgy here in Chelmsford when I say, do you notice where verse 2 is? And they almost will say in harmony, after 1 and before 3, um, so that you, you read verses in the order they come in. And that's not rocket science. Um, we do that when we read the newspaper, but we don't do it when we read the Psalms. Right. Uh, listen, three strikes are out. That was the third time the B word has been mentioned. So just, yeah, d- don't all rush out and buy this thing that's being published today. It's, it, it, you know, if you teach in a seminary, you've got to do some publishing. Um, it's, it's not going to change your life. I mean, you can read it without knowing any Hebrew, but it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's a heavy, it's got big, thick footnotes. What would be useful for you can be said in about three pages, hence this podcast. So we're going to leave the book behind and never mention it again. And we're just, and we're just going to look at the Psalms now. But your Which minister, book are you referring to? <laughs> your, your minister would be really pleased if he gets it for a birthday present. Yes. Uh, okay. And, and, and okay. Andy's birthday is on. <laughs> mine is, yeah. Uh, yeah um, the, the Andrew, you now know whom to blame if you're dumb enough to listen to this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, 
Okay, so where do we uh, where do we go to? Well, I think if we just take the problems in turn, um, because really the problems are things that we assume. So first of all, we assume that the Psalms require perfect righteousness, that that's what they're saying, or alternatively, we assume that they think they're perfectly righteous, even though they're not. We assume that suffering means you get a free pass on how you pray. Mm -hmm. We assume that in the Old Testament, they didn't have a clue that your enemy could repent. I mean, people write this in black and white, believe it or not, that David as an Old Testament saint would have had no clue that wicked deeds can end without the destruction of the evildoer. Um, and finally, I mean, I think, Andy, this is where you began, aren't we meant to love our enemies? So, yeah, people just assume, well, the Old Testament obviously didn't expect you to know that you should love your enemies or bless them or warn them, that actually what you're told to do in the Old Testament is, is vengeance. And like I said, Darren, if we took those five assumptions to any other book of the Old Testament, we'd fairly quickly see that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But it also doesn't work in the Psalms. And I don't mean that it doesn't work in the nice Psalms. It doesn't work in the very Psalms that are the problem, where you've got imprecations. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. And so, I think yeah, go on. There are five very helpful assumptions, and we should, we should try and work our way through those, I think. So let's start, start at the beginning then. Do prayers against enemies require perfect righteousness then? Okay. Is, yeah. And, and so, just expand that a little bit. Um, I know Darren touched on it, but what, what are we assuming there that we often bring to the Psalms? Yeah. So we're assuming that whenever we see a word like righteous or upright, we mean, I don't need to be justified by Christ. I can stand on my own two feet. I am blameless. And therefore, I have earned God's favor. And he should therefore squash my enemy like a bug and leave me standing because he loves me because I've deserved his love. Um, and that is simply not what righteous means in the Old Testament. Um, righteous most often in the in the old testament means i'm in court and here's my neighbor i'm a farmer he's a farmer and somebody moved a boundary stone and one of us didn't move it and the other one did and the court has got to decide who moved the boundary stone and if they decide that my neighbor moved the boundary stone then he's guilty and i'm not guilty and that's what righteous means. Mm. Of course, it has other meanings, but that is one of the very common ones. You know, so particularly in Leviticus, when you're being told, what do you do when there aren't any witnesses or not enough witnesses? Investigate and establish who's righteous, who's wicked. And that doesn't mean a character reference. It doesn't mean find out who is generically righteous. It means who did it? Uh, who's guilty? Who's not guilty? Uh, and we can... We can see that. I think we're probably doing most of this just with Psalm 7, which has got some of the most brutal uh, language. So, um, if I just read the first few verses, I'm, I'm using the ESV here. Um, so, beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Okay, so we're under fire, foxhole prayer. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart rending it in pieces with none to deliver. And then he switches tack. 
having asked to be rescued, he says, Oh Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So he's going for an all-out wager. He's saying, my enemy wants to tear my soul apart uh, like a lion. He, he's pursuing me, and I want you to let him. I want you to let him pursue me, overtake me, and kill me if I'm guilty of what they say I've done. But if they're lying... If I've been dragged into court on a false accusation, if there's perjury here, not if I am innocent of all things, but if I'm innocent as charged, then, verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up um, against the fear of my enemies, but move on to verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness." and according to the integrity that is in me. And that's why we would tend to read that and think, oh, you think you're so good. You're one of the good guys. You're blameless. No, not at all. I'm guilty of all manner of things. I mean, this is David who, who wrote Psalm 51. He, he knows he's not a righteous man if you look at all of his works, but he also knows that the people trying to kill him are lying about him that these are false trumped-up charges, and that on this occasion, Lord, I want you to look at my deeds and say, unfair cop. Mm. You did not do that, so I'm going to not let your enemies get away with it. That, that's really helpful there, Stephen, because you did a couple of things there that, when you think about it, are obvious, but we don't necessarily do when we come to the Psalms. So one of you mentioned Leviticus, you mentioned... Um, you know, uh, David. And so that we, we put that into the narrative we've got of David. So what we see with David is he is deeply flawed, um, but is, um, I can put it the right way, with the example you gave, in, in the particular issue he's petitioning God about, he's in the right. He's being faithful, uh, but he knows he's full of sin. And, and we see then Leviticus, don't we? So we see, um, you know, we talk about being righteous in this instance, in this particular matter, court, matter of um, um, before the court. Um, but no one's pretending that they're perfect because otherwise it wouldn't be the rest of the sacrificial system. Right. So our, our problem is reading Romans back into Psalms rather than using Psalms in the Old Testament as a way of filling out what, what Paul's talking about in Romans. Um, you know, that Romans was written afterwards. It's yeah. not true, but it's, you know, it's a wider, they're not, we're not reading in the context the Bible um, presents itself to us in. Um, so that, that really helps. Yeah. And I, I think, so uh, some might miss here what we've just said. We're not saying let's pit Romans against Psalms. No. But rather this side of the cross, when we have seen the depth of the mercy of God and the depth of his judgment far more clearly than the Old Testament saints could, and we're waiting for Jesus to return and judge the living and the dead, it's right that for a Christian, when you hear the word righteous, your first thought should go to judgment day. Mm. I am righteous in Christ from the day I turn to him for all eternity. And I'm not talking about my behavior. I'm talking about that alien righteousness that Christ has given me by faith, credited to my account. That means I will sail through judgment. That It's absolutely right that that should be the main first thought. Mm. 
And of course, that is what Paul is talking about in Romans. And we're not denying that in the slightest, but that is not the only sense in which we are righteous and sometimes unrighteous. Something I found really helpful from what you were just pointing out, uh, Stefan, is that in the context, would it be fair to say in, in Psalm 7, before the imprecatory aspect of his prayer, he has a self-imprecatory aspect. Yes. He's saying, do to me what I'm about to pray you do to my enemies. Yeah. If I'm wrong, if I'm not righteous. And that's just a helpful observation that this isn't a this isn't a psalm of someone venting this kind of um uncontrolled anger against his enemies. He's actually saying, if I'm in the wrong, let it be done to me. Yes. What I'm about to say to be done to them if they're in the wrong. And yeah. actually I think that just gives a bit of perspective on what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in fact, we'll see in a minute that he's not even asking. He's asking for worse for himself than for them, but we'll, right. we'll get to that in a bit. Right, 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 right. But yeah, one way that people, and you may find this hard to believe, people do psychologize these and, and talk about venting. So let me give you the best, and as in the most sensible example of this, goes along these lines. We know that God won't answer evil prayers. We know that these prayers are evil, so it's safe to get them off our chest so that we stop feeling angry, and then we won't take vengeance. Do you get the logic? I've yeah. got this evil desire for vengeance in my chest. To stop me acting on it, let me rant it at God and leave it in his hands, safe in the knowledge that he won't. That's not what's going on here. It's almost like a catharsis. Yeah, exactly. An exercise in making me feel better in, in, in a safe room because nothing's actually going to happen. Yeah, that's, that's precisely the, the idea. Um, which is funny, even Calvin writes about that being not what's going on um, okay. five centuries before anybody bothered to write it down. Um, <laughs> but th that, that fits into why, you know, you've seen here, um, when you appeal to God's righteousness, um, as, as often happens, uh, so verse 17, at the end of the psalm, I will give thanks to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And we might think that grates a bit. Isn't it better to thank him for his mercy? And we're saying, no, the point is, I'm throwing myself away from all deceit and saying, I'm not going to get away with having, you know, taken my neighbor's wife, says David, because the Lord is righteous. Mm -hmm. But now I'm accused of stealing my neighbor's ox and I didn't. So I'm grateful that God is righteous because I'm not going to get punished for something I didn't do. Right. Right, 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 right. And maybe that's a good segue then into the kind of second assumption that you identified for us, uh, which is this uh, sense of delusion of self-righteousness, which, um, and I think this is a reason why people struggle with these, with these prayers is, is, you know, because they seem to be saying, ah, look at my, look at your enemies they need judgment and we want to go yeah but so do i yeah you know I, I i i need mercy and forgiveness as much as my enemies do so who am i and who's david to call down hellfire and brimstone on them when he deserves it himself if not yeah. more indeed um good so we've partly seen that already in seven haven't we that, that right. there he is saying i know that in principle i could have sinned so 
self-imprecation, I think you put it really helpfully, self-curse, if I'm guilty. Um, Darren, you talked about, you know, you wouldn't read any other book jumping around verses and chapters. So let, let's look at what happens in the first three Psalms, if, if I can wear it, test your patience a little bit. Um, big brushstroke, Psalm 1. You could think of saying, it, it ends with, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if you've been a good little boy, it's going to go well with you. If you've been a naughty boy, you're going to be judged, roughly speaking, um, would be one way you could misread that. But straight away, that's corrected for you. Because here is Psalm 2, and we're hearing that there's this rebellion. uh, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And it doesn't end with, um, blessed is the one who didn't join in the rebellion, but judged as the one who does. Rather, it ends by saying, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Blessed are who? All who take refuge in him. So to be blessed right at the entrance to the Psalms is to be a forgiven rebel, not to be one who is perfect or righteous. Now, you could still think, yeah, but David could say to himself, yeah, I don't even need that blessing because I've never rebelled, right? Um, Yes, there are forgiven sinners in the church, but there are some of us who are, you know, sons of the manse and we never sinned and and, and we're good. But look how David then introduces himself in Psalm 3. So, um, top tip, if you skip over the bits that we never sing, actually, those of you who are in charge of worshipping the church, can I ask you to start singing them? That'd be a really good thing to do. And I'm I'm, I'm not musical. I don't know how you would do it, but, you know, whatever you do, just keep this as part of the psalm. Because Psalm 3 doesn't begin with that ESV heading. It begins with those block capital letters. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, let's think about when did David flee from Absalom? Absalom tried to take the throne from David. He amassed the northern tribes, came with a massive army. David had to run away, and Absalom slept with his concubines on the roof of the palace. Why did that happen? You go to 2 Samuel and you read from 2 Samuel 10 onwards, David saw Bathsheba from the roof of his palace, lay with her in secret, and Nathan said to him, I'm going to raise up the sword from within your own household. Mm -hmm. And what you have done in secret is going to be done in public. So here is David, after he has prayed Psalm 51, and, and being restored, which he does as soon as Nathan comes to him, years later, reaping that prophetic sentence, Absalom has come. And so he knows that he is guilty, that he deserves this. But he also knows, just like in Psalm 7, that Absalom is lying. Because do you remember the story? Uh, if not, why not pause the podcast instead of listening to us, read some of God's word, 2 Samuel 10 onwards, it's a great story. Absalom spent a while standing by people going to Jerusalem saying, oh, do you want my dad to give you judgment? Oh, you speak with short vowels from the north. He, he's, he doesn't like you. He won't give you justice. Total lies. But that's how he amasses this rebellion. And what David doesn't do is to pray against Absalom in this psalm. And, and you see into Samuel that David leaves Jerusalem and refuses to take the Ark of the Covenant with him. Now, the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Numbers is what you take into battle. 
And do you remember in Numbers, how do you take the Ark of the Covenant into battle? By saying this, arise, Lord, and strike my enemies. And there you've got it in verse 7. But in between what's happened, back to 2 Samuel, David has said, I don't know whom God is going to choose because he's dealing with two sinners. Absalom is a sinner usurping the throne. I'm a sinner who deserves to be dethroned because of what I did. But I'm going to pray specifically that the council of Ahithophel would be, this will make sense if you know the story, would be overturned. I'm going to lie down with my troops and spend the night in the fords of the Jordan. Ahithophel says, kill him quickly while he's there. His council is overturned. David's men come to him and say, don't spend the night here. Tomorrow they're coming to get you. He crosses the Jordan, doesn't get wiped out. Verse five, I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. So he goes from not knowing whom God is going to choose out of two wicked sinners to then knowing that God entirely because of his mercy has chosen to spare David and take his side against Absalom. Um, and that is why then he's able to say, okay, arise, Lord, um, save me. Uh, oh my God. He still doesn't pray against Absalom. He still just says, you are the God who strikes all my enemies on the cheek. You are the one who breaks um, the teeth of the wicked. Um, yeah. So I think you, could, you couldn't see it more clearly than this is the other side of Psalm 51. 51 kills any idea that David thinks he's better than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. But even when he's been forgiven, he knows he hasn't earned God's mercy. And I think that's really helpful, Stefan, to give us that context and give us that insight into Psalm 3. I think what you were saying about Psalm 1 and 2 is very helpful as well in its context. I, I just... We read Psalm 1 far too flatly, in my humble opinion. You know, blessed is the man. And we all think this is the man that God wants me to be. Mm -hmm. And I want to go, no, 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 no. This is what God wants you to be. Chapter 2, verse 12. Take refuge in him. It moves from the singular blessed is the man to the plural at the end of chapter 2. Yep. So don't read... As soon as you start reading Psalm 1 as this is me and this is what I should be like, as your first application, I just think you're immediately in trouble and you're going to, you know, um, theologians and commentators talk about Psalm 1 and 2 as the two pillars of walking into the Psalter. Yeah, the, mm. the, the, the great temple, if I could put it like that. And there's an argument that that is true, that there is a a movement into the presence of God that ends, you know, in the heavens, the eschatological temple at the end with the Hallel Psalms, et cetera, et cetera, that you're going through. These are the two markers, the two guideposts into the Psalms. If you get this wrong, if you read Psalm 1 as, this is how to be a better Christian, then we're immediately, Psalm 1 is about Jesus, isn't it? It blesses yeah. the man. Psalm 2, verse 12 is about us. What do we then do? We take refuge in him. And that's exactly what David is doing, uh, which is a, a long way of just say, agreeing with what you've just said, that yeah. when we get to Psalm 3 and the implicatory Psalms, David isn't going, I'm the man of Psalm 1. He's saying, I need the man of Psalm 1. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I need refuge in him. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I can do this. And, and it's interesting that, you know, already we've made massive, it shows that there's a few steps we can make that make this a lot more 
sense for us and then is more readily useful to us and and comforting um and also shows how far you can dig around so um i preached on um one or two samuel a while back and um and interesting on this section with absalom if you look at the direction that um david retreats and comes back and look at the um geographical markers then look at holy week and look at the route that jesus takes Mm -hmm. and they're the same so there's there's loads of stuff that you can you can mind about how jesus you know, takes our judgment and restores us through death and resurrection in, in, in that bit of David. And then and then you sing Psalm 3 along with it. It's, there's oh, a yeah. lot there. There's a lot there for you. Oh, and I mean, a tree planted by streams of water, what does that remind you of? Um, right. Yes, Adam should have been like this. Yes. Who is really going to be like this? Well, Ezekiel gives you some clue, but it's Revelation 21 that really cashes that out. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Andy, I agree with you completely. What, I think a really sensible way to read Psalms 1 and 2 together is that Psalm 2 talks about a king on Zion, my holy hill, whom God has established. And Psalm 1 says, what do we need that king to be like? Because yes. we're not like this. Yeah. Mm. He needs to be like that. But equally, like we were saying when we were last together, talking about what does God's law teach, even the law of Moses? So once you say Psalm 1 verse 2, I delight in the law of the Lord. Well, I'm delighting in the law given to sinners. Yeah. That includes the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, provision for atonement. Yes, exactly. It's part of the law. Yeah. The law keeper depends on God for salvation. Yeah. It's not. And go and listen to our other podcast that will probably be all right, but all out by the time this one is yeah. uh, to, to find out more about that. It'd be really cool, wouldn't it, if the New Testament quoted Psalm 2 after Jesus died for our sins? Oh, it would. You know, if, only they, if only they'd thought of that in Acts. Would, you know. wouldn't, that, wouldn't that clear it up? Wouldn't that clear it up? I mean, that's what's going yeah. on. You know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, that's really helpful. So what about this third assumption that you talked about, Stefan, um, uh, and that we began with uh, to a degree uh, when we, we kicked this off? Um, suffering, you know, is suffering... A, qualifi- a sufficient qualification for praying against enemies. So, you know, this is one of the things that you mentioned. Okay, well, maybe you and I can't pray this in the Western world because we're not getting hounded down. We're not getting locked up. We're not getting thrown to the lions. But the early church, the early persecuted church were, therefore that legitimizes uh, the use of the imprecatory psalms. And, and yeah. more recently, you'd get this in liberation theology as well, wouldn't you? Yes. Right. So. And I think, you know, um, I think Carl Truman has put it really well. Um, victimhood is sainthood. Yes. Is, is the watchword of our day. Um, well, and it's very interesting to see this play out. I mean, in our uh, current culture where uh, we can't spell grace, let alone work it out. Hmm, yeah. there, there is, it is one of the, you know, we're, we're living in an uber meritocracy now. Yeah. Uh, where if you don't virtue signal certain things, if you don't agree with certain things, if you if your great granddad did or didn't do certain things, then there is no forgiveness here. Yeah. Right. There, you are ostracized. You are pilloried. You are anathematized. Um, uh, and, and this legitimizes for the victim. It legitimizes imprecatory psalms. No one is saying, how dare you say to that? person who had you know whose great great grandfather did or didn't do certain things you know you, you that they should be cut off that you should end their contract that they should you know twitter should stop mm. them having an account no it's actually celebrated 
Yeah. That, so we are doing this to each other. We're imprecating yeah. against each other now. And this is something that defines our culture. And there's a, um, a good example of this recently. Um, if, if that's worth listening to or watching is um, uh, the language is a bit more colourful than you get on Grecology. Um, but um, <laughs> on the BBC, um, the, uh, David Badil, who's a secular Jew and a comedian, did a thing about social media and talked a bit about cancel culture. And he made the point of there being no redemptive arc. Mm, so yes, once you yes. have, and it's the sins that are, you know, um, so you have to be perfect. So once you have transgressed, so you get, um, you know, like a, an English cricket player making racist um, remarks at 18, um, now in his late 20s saying, you know, I've just, I've deeply regret that. And I'm really sorry about that. And I've grown up and I see this is wrong. And, and I don't want other people doing that. And people are saying it's too late because you did this 10 years ago. And you're saying, where's the redemptive arc or growth? Yeah. So most of us, um, well, you'd hope that people mature and grow and develop. And he gave examples of his own life. And he was talking to a comedian who's at the woke end of the spectrum saying, no, if you forgive people, that's excusing bad behavior. So we must have no forgiveness. And so then we come to this question here that, that um, Stefan raised at the beginning. It, is that being a victim, whether it's um, whatever categories we give to victim, does that mean there is no forgiveness? Start praying these implicatory psalms against their enemies. Is, is, is victimhood enough? And it's, it's so sad, isn't it? Um, mm. How will peace ever come from that? Well, David in Psalm 3, there is no question that he was a victim of Absalom. Yes. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we read that back into it. We assume it. Yeah. You know, he, he is simply Absalom's victim. Mm. Yeah. Um, in Psalm 7, he is, he is the victim of Cush the Benjaminites. Yeah. But he, he is at pains in, the, in Psalm 7 to say, it's only because I'm wrongly accused that I'm daring to come before a righteous God. Mm. And in Psalm 3, he doesn't even come before a righteous. He just, I'm not even going to ask for defense or rescue because I don't know whose side you're going to take, yeah. even though I'm undeniably uh, suffering. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, um, it simply won't do to say, um, let's play victimhood top trumps or even mm -hmm. victimhood at all. <laughs> victimhood uh, top trumps. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, but, but that is what it is, isn't it? I mean, I'm yeah, not going to rate the categories, but, you know, the, one of the comedies of our world is, you know, which trumps what? Yes. Um, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, a public official in New York gets fired for using language that was offensive to one group, and then he got reinstated because he belonged to a different group. And, and that was all there was to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so if we then think about, if, if we segue from that to repentance, did the Old Testament believe in repentance? Did they believe that the enemy could repent? Well, who's the enemy in Psalm 2? And it's something we, we need to get right, because we, we rightly use Psalm 2 evangelistically. But notice that the enemy, the sinners, are the government. The kings of the earth, the rulers are taking counsel together. And that's how Acts takes it. Herod and Pilate became friends. That's what Psalm 2 is about. It's, it's not about the ungodly in general. And so we, we need to comfort our people that smashing in pieces is the language that God reserves for um, the people who invent gulags. He's not talking about your aunt uh, who died without ever having been told about Christ. That is not the subject of Psalm 2. But with those kings, with the inventors of the gulag, verse 10 
it's not now, therefore, O former kings, be wise. Be warned, O ex-rulers of the earth. It's serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. They get to keep their jobs. They're invited to get wisdom. They're invited to prosper in the way that Psalm 1 talks about. And Psalm 1, as I'm sure you know, picks up on language from Joshua 1. Um, the, the prosperity that Joshua, as effectively king of Israel, will have mm. if he rules them by his law. That is what these pagan kings are being offered. Do you, you know, you've rebelled against the Israelite king, and you're going to end up better than you started, brought into the fold, given the blessings that belong to, uh, to Israelite people. Um, I, we see it in Psalm 3. I'm looking at the clock a little bit. But again, if you read the backstory with Absalom, how does David behave after the war is over? He's immensely gracious and forgiving. Uh, and even in verse 8 of Psalm 3, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be not on my people, mm. on your people. The very people who were hunting him um, in verse 1, the very people whom he is not afraid of in verse 6, and now it's your blessing is for them. Uh, and we see it, I think, particularly beautifully uh, in Psalm 7, where you've got this, sorry to make you jump around uh, different Psalms, um, but I'm, I'm hoping we've, we've nailed it down to 1, 2, 3, and 7. That should be, shouldn't be too many to remember. Um, in verse 12, if he does not repent he will wet his sword. Now, the first he refers to the wicked, the second one refers to God. So, you've got this common warning that you get in places like Proverbs and in other Psalms. Verse 15, um, he, the wicked man of verse 14, makes a pit, digging it out. Oh, and he falls in it, yeah? You, you get caught in your own bear trap is a common thing that's said of the wicked. And in verses 12 and 13, you know, where is the courtroom in Israel? It's in the temple. So the image of God is as if he's standing behind the temple curtain with his arrow drawn, ready to let fly at the guilty party, at the one who's falsely accusing David. But it's all on condition of verse 12a, if the wicked will not repent, then. You know, the, apparently the, um, uh, the Athenians went against the Spartans and wrote them a letter uh, to say, if we conquer you, we will enslave all your boys, we'll do unspeakable things to women, we'll plunder all your property, we'll burn your buildings to the ground. And the Spartans, uh, who were then called the Laconians, so we get laconic from this, they sent a one-word reply, which was, if. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on here. It's not that David wants the enemy to be judged by God. He wants the enemy to repent. It's if the enemy won't, then David's not going to be in any trouble. It's only going to be trouble for him. And don't we so th see this wonderfully brought out post-death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, early Acts, where, you know, Acts 2, uh, th th who you crucified. Yeah. Okay. Uh, who's the you? Well, some of the you are the 3,000 that get converted to Pentecost. Yeah. The very person, people who crucified Christ, the very one who, who wouldn't kiss the son, who were raging against the enthronement of the son, um, 
on the cross and in his resurrection are the very ones who come to kiss the sun mm. and are more blessed by virtue of it. It's, it's brought out in technicolour in Acts 2, 3, and 4, isn't it? Yeah. And, that's right. and obviously that's where that's where Scripture's going. Um, you see it though, um, the if bit, I mean, I like the illustration with the Spartans, mm. that you see that if working out, for example, when a number place in the Old Testament, where you, um, you, you know, first glance as a, as a, uh, modern Christian reader go, oh, that's a bit tough, and then and then think uh, against the backdrop of judgment, eschatological judgment, actually makes perfect sense. So you think of um, the um, destruction of the Amalekites uh, when they're amongst the Gibeonites, and they're told, um, Gibeonites are told, get out because we're going to destroy the Amalekites. Now, if I was an Amalekite, how committed to being an Amalekite uh, would I have to be to not go? Well, you know, um, yeah, so. Um, you know, the two Welsh people here, but how Welsh have you got to be to, to sort of cling to that? If someone said, I'm going to kill all the Welsh people here, um, you know, especially when you're talking about God's anointed king doing it. Yeah. So, um, you know, they, they are they are clinging to their identity of being an, um, God's enemy. And uh, they have an opportunity there to say, well, you know, my uncle married a Gibeonite. I, I, I quite like God's anointed king. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not going to stand opposed to him any longer. But they don't. They, they, they stand in their defiance. And this is what it's talking about here, isn't it? Is remaining defiantly God's enemy. Mm, mm. Yeah. Where does, you're, you're right, we, we need to kind of round this up. This has mm. been, there's so many other areas I'd love to go. I'd love to talk about judgment. Um, and is this kind of like an eschat, are the imprecatory Psalms um, a warning, an eschatological warning or an eschatological inbreaking to say judgment is coming, which itself feeds into this. So come, so turn, come and kiss the sun, lest mm. uh, the worst happen to you. Um, but what about then this notion of, of loving our enemies? We started with this. This is the kind of the common response to the imprecatory arms is, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to love our enemies, not call down hellfire and brimstone on them. Yeah. So do the Psalms have any notion of loving the enemy or um, desiring their blessing, or do they simply demand vengeance? Well, if they just demanded vengeance and didn't have a sense of loving your enemy, they wouldn't be, they'd be out of place in the Old Testament. Mm. Uh, they'd be out of place in the Old Testament, which says, if you see your enemy's ox loose, return it to him. Mm. Um, you know, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he's not quoting the Old Testament. Uh, we, we all know that, that it's a myth that the Old Testament is about hating your enemy. Yes. Uh, the Old Testament is the word of God who is love. Um, so I think already in Psalm 7, uh, we see it, I think, in, um, in two ways. One is there's a clear warning here for the enemy. Uh, you know, if he does not repent, you know, if I hate my enemy, I'm not going to say that. If I hate my enemy, I'm not going to want him to repent. I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to, say, I'm just going to gleefully know that you carry on and you're going to fall off a cliff at the end of it. Uh, you know, and uh, the way that um, the, the way that David says, actually, you get to have what you want if I'm guilty. If I'm guilty, I'm a dead man as far as I'm concerned. But I know that you're guilty, and I don't want you to be judged. Hmm. I don't want you to get what's coming to you. I'm leaving it open for you to repent. That is already quite loving. 
you know, this is not the this is not the logic of if you do something naughty, you'll get no, it's I know you're being evil and deserve a death penalty. But it's only if you don't stop now yeah. that, that eventually is going to going to come to you. Yeah. I think in Psalm three, really I can't get over that verse eight. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Um these are the people who persecuted David. These are the insurrectionists. Um, and what's hilarious, if you, when you read, you know, 2 Samuel 18, 19, uh, when the insurrection fails, it happens with relatively little bloodshed. In fact, um, more people get accidentally hanged in the forest where the battle is happening than by David's army, you know. You know. Uh, so the northern tribes all go home. Then there's the issue of shall we crown David's? Um, David in the battle has even told his armies, for my sake, don't kill Absalom. And Absalom's the one behind all of this. You could say soppy father, okay, fine. But one way or another, he's not wanting vengeance against him. But when he wins, he's then persuaded, okay, well, we need to crown you. That would be politically shrewd. Let's get you on the throne. And the northern tribes say that their noses are out of joint because they weren't invited. Now, I just want you to imagine that you walk up to the prime minister and put a gun to his head, and just before you pull the trigger, you get wrestled to the ground by the special branch. And the way the prime minister treats you afterwards is such that you get really upset that he doesn't invite you to prime minister's questions. <laughs> Maybe to a birthday party in Dynamic Street. Maybe to a, uh, I think, what's it called now? It was a drinks don't in the back garden. That's right, yeah. Um, You know, so David's forgiveness, his passing over of this capital crime, Mm. they don't even notice it because he's, we'll say no more about it, shall we? We'll move on. Mm. Which is sadly how we often are with uh, forgiveness, isn't it? That we we sometimes think God owes us one after after all of this mercy and, and grace. Well, it, it's so important, isn't it, that what happens when a Christian starts complaining about another Christian? At some point, we've got to remind ourselves, how much has God forgiven me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And David's aware of that. I, you know, okay, they've parked their car badly and crashed into my rear bumper, or they've taken the disabled spot. That means I can't go to church or whatever it is. Okay, so that's in my left hand. and my right hand are all my sins that Jesus died for. Mm. What, what, what sense of proportion do I need to have? Yes. Yeah. Mm. David begins the Psalter by saying, when I introduce myself, it's Psalm 3, getting my comeuppance via my son Absalom after I did what I did with Bathsheba. And just you wait in 48 Psalms time, you're going to read what I did with her and how I feel about it. And this is not a self-righteous man uh, who wants, you know, justice for those who are against him. This is a a broken, forbidden man uh, who knows that he didn't earn mercy and so wants his enemies to have the mercy that they didn't earn. You know, and if we had longer, we could talk about how the Psalms end and how actually that is the message for all Israel. Uh, That, you know, you were brought back from exile. You didn't deserve it. Your enemy Babylon, your enemy Edom, they don't deserve God's mercy just like you didn't. So how are you going to pray for them? Mm. And then we end with, let all that has breath praise the Lord. Yeah.
Yes. And this is brought out in lots of ways throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? I mean, um, I'm reminded of the first few chapters of Amos and how Amos starts declaring judgment on the nations around Israel. And you can just imagine the Israelites are getting increasingly worked up. Yes, give it to them, as he as he says, this nation and this nation. And if you look at a map, it's like he's circling around until it finally climaxes with, and you, mm. you Israelites. And they're like applauding and going, yeah, sock it to them, give it to mm. them, those nations round about. Oh, we're included goodness that's that's a heavy hit that we yeah. weren't expecting and it's coming that, coming from the other side you've got jonah where um right you know, the, the mm. mercy that is you've received mercy actually Nineveh can have it too if they take it and um jonah's not initially very happy <laughs> about that um so yeah, totally yeah, it's all there isn't it yeah well and it's funny that you know jonah three you, you've got that quotation from exodus 34 the lord the lord um uh, slow to anger um full of mercy, steadfast love, faithfulness, all of that formula gets alluded to in a number of places. Do you know it's picked up in every one of the five books of the Psalms? Hmm. Hmm. And it's in the first Psalm of David in book one, the first Psalm of David in book two, the only Psalm of David in book three that's all about the exile, the last Psalm of David in book four, and the last Psalm of David in book five. Wow, that's I need to go look at all that. Uh, so, so David, as the teacher of Israel, is the teacher of mercy. Yes. Yeah. He's the teacher of national mercy. And one of the things that, you, that he shows us in Psalm 51 is that, why am I using all the mercy terms of Exodus 34? What happened in Exodus 34? National apostasy. I am the king of the nation. My apostasy in how I dealt with Bathsheba is the equivalent of the sin of the nation. Mm. So when I want to give advice in prayer to an apostate nation, I'm qualified. And my advice is throw yourself on the, on the Lord and his slowness to anger, his compassion, his great mercy, his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his promises. Mm. I think that's a good note to end on. Yes, fantastic note to end on. This has been a really helpful discussion. It's helped me to, I want to go and read the Psalms. Uh, I want to go and read Psalms 1, 2, three and seven again, and some of the others. So thank you, Stefan. We said we weren't going to mention your book that's getting published today by Wolfenstock entitled Implications <laughs> in the Psalms, Love in Hard Places. So we're not going to mention that anymore. Uh, uh, or suggest you buy it for your minister. Yeah, don't say that. And um, <laughs> don't go onto Amazon and Google that under Stefan Jenkins. Um, I'm sure it's at a reasonable price. Uh, and yeah, we want to discourage you from talking about the book, thinking about it, loving hard places by, by Stefan Jenkins. But this has been a great podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Until next time. Thanks.